Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome into the NFL on Fox podcast presented by Verizon. I am Dave Hellman and what a show we have for you to get week 13 started. I'm going to talk to former Steelers linebacker Ryan Shazier, who better to talk to than a former Steeler about the state of the Steelers. Not just that, but the entire AFC North, the toughest division in football. We'll break all that down for you later on. You might have heard. There's a pretty big Thursday night game tonight. The Dallas Cowboys welcoming the Seattle Seahawks to Arlington, Texas. Showdown of two current NFC playoff teams. Plenty of other stuff to get to. But first, where do we start every Thursday? That would be with none other than our guy, Peter Schrager. The cheat sheet presented by Honda, which we do every week. And what a week to catch up with Peter. We talked some Aaron Rodgers returning to the practice field. Yes, I said that. Talked about the turmoil in Carolina. Not to mention, you know, that little game happening in Philadelphia this weekend. Eagles 49ers. Jam-packed conversation with Peter this week. Check it out. All right, Peter, the fun thing about doing this every week is I remember talking to you in September about (laughs) losing Aaron Rodgers I remember talking about whether the Jets were doing enough about the quarterback situation without him. I remember talking about like, oh my God, he couldn't actually like come back this year, could he? And like moments before we start recording, the news comes down that the New York Jets have activated Aaron Rodgers' 21-day practice window. What do you think it means? Mm, I mean, let's let's leave the door open here. He was practicing. He was throwing the ball around in the cold weather at Florham Park. And uh, Sala was excited to announce it. I still don't know if he plays in a game, but I think the mere fact that he's even at practice, um, if you're looking for a little, uh, what's the word? I don't even know. It's a major accomplishment, right? And I don't know if he looks at it that way or if it's got to be a live game action, but to even get back on the field in the amount of time that he's doing this, it's he's already defied science and he's already defied uh, human nature and what he and Elatrosh have been able to do. And then, of course, he gets all the credit for rehabbing, getting back. But whatever the surgery was, I, I'm not a doctor. I can't get into the actual details. I've been it, someone has explained it to me 20 times. I've had 20 different medical. I, it's it's not doing the viewers any service. Me trying to explain. Um, we can have on several doctors to do it. Whatever it was done, it was revolutionary. And he's out there throwing, but doing it in practice without getting hit and without having any defensive lineman breathing down his neck is a little different than doing it in live action. Yeah, I couldn't help but notice, obviously, Rodgers has become famous for doing his weekly appearances with Pat McAfee. And he was very, very sure to say, like, I got to be able to take care of myself. Like, I got to, you know, I actually have to be able to kind of evade pressure and, and do stuff besides just, like, stand in the pocket and throw. And that's what... So, I mean, it's 21 days to evaluate. There's obviously, there's still a lot of season left. I wonder if 21 days is enough to get to that point. Because you do, once that window's up, you have to make a decision of like, does he go back to IR or is he on the active roster? We just saw the Vikings do that with Justin Jefferson. I mean, I I don't think anybody knows the answer to that right now, but I feel like they they carry that all the way up until decision day, right? Yeah, they will. And and even him being there, maybe it's a lift, right? Like 
they haven't written their season off. They're four and seven. It looks like it's done. That it looked like it died on Amazon's Black Friday day um, in the Meadowlands, but they still have a winnable game against Atlanta this week. They've got Houston. They still, uh, you know, play division opponents left on the schedule, including the Patriots. They've got the they got Miami after Houston. Yeah, I mean, these are winnable games. So to them, it's like you know, we're we're not done yet. Um, if they're out of contention, does he come back? The answer still might be yes, based on his own individual desires to get out there. I just don't know if it's smart to have now. Here's one thing that someone said to me. All right, so say he does go back out there, and God forbid he hurts himself. They got the whole offseason to rehab. He just did it in three months. <laughs> right. We've already shown that he can do it um, and get back on the field. I think even today, us talking about Aaron Rodgers being on a practice field and legitimately being out there, not as some uh, you know ceremonial thing or some rah-rah guy uh, you know, with crutches on the sideline giving his team a pep talk, being there, being active, and throwing a football, it's a huge deal. And I would think that the morale and the energy and maybe even the glimmer of hope that he might return could lift this team um, at least to play a little better than they did on, on Friday. I mean, if you, yeah, if you go back to like week two and tell me that this was going to happen, even knowing that practice is a long step from playing in a game, like I, I don't know that I would have believed it, or I certainly would have been really blown away. So it's clearly an amazing story, but I want to ask you this. And my my purpose behind asking this is I'm not trying to put anybody on the spot or like call for anybody's jobs, but I'm legitimately curious about the vibes in New York because it's really cool that Rodgers is coming back, but the season feels like it's on life support. And I'm just curious, like with all the anticipation there and, and all the excitement, like, is, th- is this a situation with Joe Douglas and Robert Sala where it's like, well, shit happens. Like, sometimes you lose your quarterback on the first night of the season. Or, like, is there a little more urgency to try to save this thing than that? Yeah, I, I don't – I think when you have – it's not only their quarterback. When you have, like, the 11th, 12th, 14th, and 15th offensive linemen that you planned on starting, it, the offensive line's in tatters. Um, the quarterback is now down to their third quarterback with Boyle. I don't think they ever – ever expected the season to go like this injury wise the amount of guys i mean vera tucker was playing like an all pro before he got hurt he hasn't played uh beckton ends up you know getting hurt a little bit in in these games and he's gonna tough it out and that's great to see but like they're not at full strength Dwayne brown has been out of the lineup so you lose rogers but it's not just been rogers they've lost so many guys they lost you know they lost sauce and reed to concussions earlier this season in crucial moments so uh, to me, I don't think they would ever have expected this. Now, are their jobs in jeopardy? I don't know. I think a lot of that has to do with how these next few weeks go. I would imagine Salah's job is not in jeopardy considering how this thing went, but everything I'm hearing is that uh, let's wait and see before we make any declarative statements, whether it be Rogers, whether it be the coaching staff, or whether it be the GM. The season's not done yet. There is a pretty huge difference between like, you know, just waving the flag with six weeks to play or fighting all the way to the end. So yeah, it's, it's something worth watching. Meanwhile, the other big, I will, news wait, I will say this, I will say this, and this is in defense of kind of a lot of the New York media and a lot of the fans coming in and this might get clipped off. And if it does fine, if you look at all these quarterbacks who have these huge contracts and Rogers is one of them, very few of those contracts that have like 25, 26, have backups that are making seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. There might be not be any of them. So, you know, everyone's crushing the Jets for not having a veteran backup behind Rodgers. If any of these quarterbacks could, you know, Burrow's backup is Jake Browning. Deshaun Watson's backup is Dorian Thompson Robinson. Like, it just happened that Zach and the offensive line were in tatters by the end. It didn't work out. But, like, I don't know if I'd pin that on Joe Douglas to not have – a lot of people were like, how come he didn't get Minshew? Or how come he didn't get Brissett? I don't know if I could put that on Joe Douglas. You look around budgetary-wise, a lot of these teams, very few of the teams that have these star quarterbacks have backups that are you know, guys that are making eight, nine, ten million. It's just so much budget to de- dedicate to one position. No, I, I agree with that. And I, I honestly, and look, I'm not saying it's fair. I think the thing that screwed the Jets more than anything was Josh Dobbs bouncing between teams and and looking like a pretty capable quarterback. And I, if you're a fan, I can hear you saying like, uh, surely a guy that can come in and try to save the season is worth a seventh round pick. Like, I think that I get that's it. where they get into hot water, in my opinion. But at the same time, 
uh, you know, how how often do you really think you're going to catch lightning in a bottle like that? So I, I'm really I'm conflicted about the Jets because part of me is like, ah, there's more you could have done. Like you're wasting this defense. But on True. the other side, like on the, the same coin, I'm just like, yeah, well, how many teams really have the season go where they want it to when they lose their starting quarterback on the first day? Like, it's just I I was in Dallas for when when the Cowboys lost Romo early on and I was there when they lost Dak midway through the season two. And guess what? It really, really sucks. So well, it's like in the first instance, when they lose Romo, Dak is this miracle season. The second one, everyone thinks it's going to be Ben DiNucci or, you know, Cooper Rush. And guess what? Andy Dalton, right, came in and it was just like, it's a mess. And I was there another year in Dallas when like Matt Castle was starting. I was going to say, keep in mind, Dak saved their Dak saved their bacon once. But the year before that, they traded for Matt Castle and like Kellen Moore got some run and it was a putrid, putrid season. Mm -hmm. So, uh, like I said, I think I understand it. If you think there's more the Jets could have done. I also understand that losing your starting quarterback four snaps into the season is 99% of the time going to be a recipe for disaster. Meanwhile, we don't, we don't have to speculate about what's going on with Carolina. Frank Reich is out after 11 games and we've seen it all over the news, you know, six coaches in six years, David Tepper is on his, he'll be hiring a head coach for the third time since he bought the team. What do you, I mean, what do you make of this? Like is, is Carolina the new like it dysfunctional franchise? It was Washington for so long, but I, I'm, it feels like Carolina's making a run for the money. I'm torn on it. I think it was. Um, I think I think Tepper spoke yesterday and he said something that stuck out. A lot of people took other headlines and made things of it, but one of the things that he said was like, "I'm not a. I'm not one of those guys who has no patience in business world." So like he runs Appaloosa Management. It's one of the top finance firms, and I. I've noted this to other people like he's viewed in a lot of ways it's like a Belichick of Wall Street in that people who have worked for Tepper work for him for many years and they go on to run different firms. So like he's very successful in a lot of ways. Obviously, he's made billions and billions of dollars, but he's also a mentor, a leader and like revered on Wall Street, which is a different industry, but cut through. In this one, he's like, I, I'm not known as this guy in my other, but like, I understand what success looks like. And this is dreadful. So as a fan, you could be up in arms. And I saw a lot of articles being written, especially by the locals being like, he should step away. You know, he shouldn't be so meddlesome. And I get that. That's the initial reaction. Frank Reich's Panthers were one in 10 and they look like they're completely incompetent. So at some point, do you look at the coaching staff and just rip the bandaid off? Like Schefter said it yesterday and he's right. There's going to be a lot, a lot of coaching firings and hirings going on in January. So if you rip the bandaid off now, A, you get a look at Chris Tabor, which is likely not going to be the guy. He's the interim. But you also get a head start with no airs, no secrecy of let's figure out what we want next and let's lay the groundwork and let's start getting on that now. And they get a head start on all these other teams who are going to be firing their coaches and hiring coaches um, on Black Monday. I, part of me is almost like he know he knew they weren't winning a Super Bowl with Frank Reich, and if they were, then okay, that's the that's the crime that he'll commit on this one and say I just was impatient with Frank Reich. But this team has regressed; they are not a product worth watching. And as much as fans are up in arms over the fact that they you know pulled the plug and that he spent all this money, it's not their money. It's not their money. So you do you appreciate an owner for saying, hey, let's let's get this right. I'm gonna take a swing. Um, he's taking a beating in the media right now, and maybe rightfully so. Maybe this was not handled the best way. And gosh, it's an embarrassment to hire and fire a coach. He he lasted shorter than Urban Meyer did it in Jacksonville. So you think about how we look at that tenure. Um, but I also see a different side of it, and it's like, all right, well turn the page. It wasn't going to happen with Frank Reich and let's find the right coach. And they'll do that. And they get a head start on the research and fetting process. Now I'll say this, like even, I mean, the worst, the worst teams in the league, usually like you turn it on and you're like, this is, this is an NFL football team. Like they might be bad, but this is an NFL team specifically on offense. Their defense is fine, but Carolina's offense very rarely have I seen anything like it with just how toothless that team looks trying to score points, which brings me to my next question. How appealing is this job right now with the fact that we know that they don't have their pick 
which is going to go to the Chicago Bears. I love Bryce Young. I'm I feel perfectly confident saying it. I I thought Bryce Young was the best guy coming out. I watched what he did in college. I I was like, if he can do this consistently in the SEC, I think he can do it in the pros. Hasn't been the case so far, but combining what Bryce has looked like with how much work there is to do and knowing that you don't have a pick and knowing that David Tepper to this point has had kind of a short fuse. Is this an appealing job right now? Here's the rub. They not only hired Frank Reich for a lot of money, all guaranteed, but as you heard all these names being talked about in the last couple of days, I've known this all along. It was considered a strength, but they had Jim Caldwell on staff. They had Josh McCown on staff. They had Thomas Brown, who was, an up-and-coming play caller and a guy that everyone loved in L.A. signed for huge money to come over to the Carolina Panthers. Deuce Staley, one of the most venerable running back coaches in the entire league, he signed for huge Tepper wrote a huge check to all these guys to come over and work with this young quarterback. And when I was at the combine, this, the conversation was, is it going to be Stroud or Young? And they hadn't they hadn't uh, moved up, of course, and it was just talking about who can they get. Could it be Anthony Richardson? They were still at the nine spot at the time before they traded up. And the, the comment that I got from a lot of people within the league and from sources in Carolina was, well, look, we don't know who the quarterback is yet, but we do know we have an elite offensive coaching staff of veteran guys who are going to get in his ear and help him. You add Andy Dalton to that room and you've got an elite ex-starting ex quarterback who's been through it. So they thought they were surrounding Bryce Young with this incredible collection of minds, this think tank. What ended up happening was there was 15 voices in Bryce Young's ear right out of the gate, all maybe with different objectives, all on different pages. And the offense was atrocious and the offensive line is even worse. Bryce Young has regressed. doesn't look like the guy we saw in college at all right now. And now it's like you turn the page who wants that job. Well, a, it's going to pay you very well. B it's one of the 32. And I know that sounds pretty blase and you can say that every time, but head coaching jobs don't come along all that often. And see, the expectations are pretty low, and you still have Bryce Young, who's a first overall pick, who, to your point, fairly unanimously was the number one guy from all the draft experts, not just the GM and the coach and the owner in Carolina. More than anything, I just I, I hope this works out for Bryce. Like I still think he's a good football player. I I refuse to believe like that much ability over the course of his career at Alabama translated so poorly. It's it's possible. It's possible, but I hope they get somebody in there. If he if he is just a complete bust and he stinks and the size is an issue and all the stuff that we heard that he was Steph Curry and doesn't matter about size. He can, you know we have to really, really, really take a big deep dive on not only front offices around the league but the mock draft and draft draft analyst world, because I would love to see anybody who had Stroud hands down over Bryce Young. When I'm talking, Bryce Young was not only the peg to go number one to Carolina since they made the trade because everyone had the in, the in on that 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 franchise. I think objectively, and maybe there were maybe there were guys, and if they were, I I, but objectively, and I don't try to ever like say like, well, I scouted it, but talking around the league, objectively, everyone had Bryce Young over Stroud. That's just what it was. So. To, to, to say that, oh my God, one is so much better than the other. I always say this. It's as much nurture over nature. And Peyton Manning went to a really interesting situation in Indianapolis, and it turned out it was the perfect match. Ryan Leaf did not go to that situation in San Diego, and he you know obviously struggled. In this case, CJ Stroud, D'Amico Ryans, Tank Dell, uh, you know, that the veteran offensive line with Tunzel and Howard and those guys, it all worked out. It was great for for Stroud. Bryce Young. It could not have gone worse in his first 12 weeks. The question is, can you undo all that? And can you give him something around him that can kind of fix that? It's so funny how like it's so cyclical and there's so few opportunities to get this right, which is what makes it so interesting. But like, you know, Joe Burrow was not this crazy big like he doesn't have this crazy big arm, but it was like his he's got maneuverability. He's got this great processor in his brain. And and it worked out and you you kind of buy a similar logic with Bryce Young, but then you see CJ Stroud and you're like, no, we need the gigantic guy with the cannon yeah. arm. Like that's what we need. Yeah. You know, it's Stroud six three and throws 70 yards. Like okay, around that, that, that and around and works. around we go. Yeah, exactly. Real quick, okay. I don't I don't want to put you on the spot. I don't need you to like ruin anything with your sources so you don't have to like say any names or anything, but like yeah. 
Dude, so you mentioned Schefter talking about how busy January is going to be. Like, mm-hmm. do you think this is going to be an unusually active or surprising turnover in the league? Like when this season's all said and done? Depends on how, how, how you view that. I think last year was surprisingly quiet. There were only five coaching changes last year. I think this year, just on without saying names, like you said, I think a lot of them are out of them make the playoffs and there's several of them. Um, but I would say that currently, I would say that I, I, you know, to talk to people around the league, we're talking about seven to eight. And then if you always have a wild card, you throw in nine and then you might have some veteran long-term coaches at other teams who might either a say I'm swapping sides and going somewhere else or stepping away. So I would say prudently on the low end, we're probably talking seven. And if that's the case, that's a lot, man. Thinking seven, and then if the right stuff goes wrong, like, you know, if if the right team has a mishaps on the way to the postseason or maybe even in the postseason, it could get really wild. Those are that the wild is, cards. Those are the yeah, ones exactly. that it's like, wait, that guy got shown the door? Well, after X many years with this team, they didn't get over the hump. So, like, look, I, I, we could go team to team. I think the Belichick situation is fascinating. Um, if Belichick is done in New England – does he then resurface somewhere else? And if that's the case, who's he replacing? And then the guy that he's replacing, does that guy then hit the coaching market? Because I'll tell you, Carolina made their deal and everyone's like, oh, well, Ben Johnson. Ben Johnson could have had the job last year. He could have at least interviewed for the job, got all the way to the plane, and then was like, I'm not interviewing. I'm taking my name out. All right, so you cross off Ben Johnson. Who are the other names? Who are the other names? Uh, so like some of these teams are going to fire their head coach, and I wouldn't be shocked if that head coach who's fired is interviewing for other jobs and might get one somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, especially, again, if you know, if some teams with like winning or 500 records part ways with their coaches, then I absolutely buy that That as a, as a storyline. That'll definitely be something to watch. All right, let's get you out of here real quick, though. I mean, it's, it's that week. We can't not talk about Eagles Niners. And thank you. Thank God it, not that it, I mean, it was always going to be a big game, but I really appreciate the Niners for whooping some ass here over the last yeah. couple of weeks and and getting the anticipation back up. I mean, take it wherever you want it. Is there, yeah. is there something about this that stands out to you specifically more than yes. just being the game of the year? Yes, these teams do not like each other. And I'm all for niceties. And I love the fact that guys exchange jerseys. And in the offseason, we all have tight end you. And we all smile. And we have a blast. And it's great. They all work out together. And they all make millions. And they're all in Madden. And they all do this Super Bowl appearances. Niners and Eagles don't like each other. Debo had comments this week. Hassan Reddick had comments this week. Last year, Fred Warner's wife came out of that playoff game and was like, it was the most vicious crowd I've ever seen. They were downright hostile towards us. Uh, the Niners have been quite vocal that they think last year's game wasn't on even footing. You know, they lost their quarterback three three plays into the game, and they thought that was not exactly a great representation of the season as a whole. Eagles, as Hassan Reddick said, boo hoo hoo. He's the one who knocked them out. You don't. They lined up a tight end to stop Hassan Reddick. That that's on you. Uh, they don't like each other. They respect each other. They don't like each other. And I can't wait to see that Eagles offensive line, which prides itself on being the biggest bullies in the block, going up against that 49ers defensive line, which doesn't take many prisoners either. I, I Look, you could run this as a commercial for Fox Sports. I think it's the game of the year, honestly. I think nope. it's the game of the year. AFC is going to pick at each other, and they're going to, you know, the Cowboys are always going to be relevant in this conversation, but it's Eagles, Niners, and both teams come in healthy and angry at the other side. And one last wrinkle to it Eagles are home. I believe the Eagles are 8-0 in their last home games. 49ers are favored. That's another nice little wrinkle here. Isn't so, that wild? Isn't it crazy? So I'm I'm here for all of it. I, I do the Fox NFL kickoff show on Sundays, and I fly back, and I fly back on an airline uh, that has the games. This is one of those where you're flying back on a jet, and it's every single TV on the jet who has TV is all watching the same thing. You might as well be in a sports bar. I can't wait for it. Oh man. Uh, that's yeah. Like, yeah, just 200 t- uh, TVs all tuned to the <laughs> same thing. We were fortunate enough to, uh, we had Javon Hargrave on the show a month or so ago. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to bother him during the biggest week of the year, but I, I wonder what this week is like for him as a, a 2022 Eagle. Who's now preparing to go back there as a member of the Niners. Like he can't win no matter which side of this thing he's on. 
So true. And there's actually this like cool shared history. Hargrave is the latest, but I think back to T.O. I think back to Ricky Waters. I think back to Jeff Garcia. Like these two franchises, they're not they're not like historical rivals, but a lot of the players who have had big moments uh, played for both teams. And here we are. A lunch pail game. God, it's it's going to be fun, man. I can't wait. I appreciate it, and we, we'll recap it. We'll get to everything next week as well. And uh, as usual, Peter, I really appreciate the time, man. Thanks, guys. A couple important notes to get to before we move on to Thursday Night Football. For starters, one of the most electrifying playmakers of this generation has called it a career officially. Sean Jackson wasn't with a team up until this point, but he has officially announced his retirement 15 years three pro bowlers as again, one of the most electrifying players of the last, I don't know, 20 plus years, take it all the way back to college. You realize there was a period of time where three of the very best skill players in the NFL were all Cal golden bears, Aaron Rodgers, Deshaun Jackson, Marshawn Lynch. I don't know. I just wanted to shout that out, but Deshaun Jackson from Cal to the Philadelphia Eagles, where he clearly made the most of his legacy as one of the greatest playmakers in Eagles history. Also spent time with the Washington Commanders. I believe there was a Tampa Bay Buccaneers stint in there somewhere. The Las Vegas Raiders, the Baltimore Ravens. He's been all over the place, but a Philadelphia legend. And again, I'll say it one more time, one of the most electrifying deep threats we've ever seen. I knew he was good, But it wasn't until I started looking into this that I realized just how good he was. Deshaun Jackson, 34 touchdowns of 50-plus yards in his career. That is second best in league history, only to Jerry Rice, more than Randy Moss. If you're in in that air, you're pretty damn good at what you did. 26 touchdowns of 60-plus yards, which is the most in NFL history. You can easily argue... He's one of the scariest deep threats to ever play this game. Love this stat from Pro Football Reference. His 11,263 career yards are fourth most in history by a wide receiver who was listed at 5'10 or shorter. So shortened stature for an NFL player did not stop him from being completely terrifying. He was obviously one of the faces of the late 2000s, 20-teens Eagles, the the later years of the Andy Reid era before he left for Kansas City. It was D-Jack. It was my buddy, LaShawn McCoy. It was Jeremy Macklin, Nick Foles, Fletcher Cox on the other side of things. Not to mention, amazingly, you know, Jason Kelsey and Brandon Graham, two Eagles legends who are still playing. Speaks a ton about those guys that they're still playing at such a high level while guys like Deshaun Jackson are retiring. As you might guess, for a guy who has such a crazy amount of long touchdowns, he just, he always had that knack. Like, you throw the ball up to him in one-on-one coverage down the field or even in two-on-one sometimes, he's going to make a play. The 88-yard touchdown with Michael Vick, I'm sure you've seen it. Go watch it again. Who cares? Watch it again. One of the craziest throws and catches you will ever see. Michael Vick to Deshaun Jackson against Washington First play from scrimmage for the Eagles playing on the road. I know from personal experience, this feels like it's worth mentioning, an absolute Dallas Cowboy killer, particularly as a visitor. It felt like every time Deshaun Jackson's team, whether it was the Eagles or otherwise, came to Dallas, he was going to go off. I looked this up. 11 career games playing in Dallas for the Eagles, Commanders, and even the Raiders. 38 catches for 949 yards and five touchdowns. Even as recently as 2021 when he was with Vegas, he was going to hurt you. Course, Cowboy fans will be quick to remind you, one of his big plays in Dallas was the infamous goal line fumble as a rookie when he just kind of tossed a 61-yard touchdown behind him before he crossed the goal line. I don't know if it was the first But it was one of the earliest and most memorable examples of a guy not quite holding onto the football all the way through the the touchdown catch. We've seen it so many times in the years since, but 
way, way back in 2008 when replay was a somewhat newish technology and Deshaun Jackson was a young, young player, that'll stick with you forever. I think that that is part of Deshaun Jackson's legacy is like the crazy big electrifying play and also the like, no, do anything but that. Don't do that play as well. But the good far, far, far outweighing the boneheaded and, and the most legendary moment of all, let's cap it off with this. The second miracle at the Meadowlands, 2010, Deshaun Jackson's Eagles trail the New York Giants 31 to 10 midway through the fourth quarter. It's late December. It's a division game. First place in the NFC East is on the line. It's looking every bit like a easy Giants win. Mike Vick and the Philly offense rally. They tie the game, which is miraculous enough on its own. They tie the game late, just like a minute and some change to play. Looks for all the world like we're heading for overtime. Even when the Eagles force a punt on the Giants' last possession, it's looking like overtime. There's only like a minute to play. Giants coach Tom Coughlin made sure to tell punter Matt Dodge. He said, don't punt it out of bounds. Punt it where Deshaun Jackson can't get it. Don't kick to that guy. Needless to say, he kicked to that guy. And true to Deshaun Jackson's form, he fumbles the initial punt, recovers it, and the rest is history. Makes three guys miss, shoots the gap in the blocking right upfield, and he's gone. He's so far gone that he jogs out the last 10 yards. He jogs along the end zone line to make sure time expires, and the Eagles get one of the coolest wins ever. The Miracle in the New Meadowlands, Miracle in the Meadowlands 2.0, whatever you want to call it. An iconic moment in Eagles history and in NFL history. Like, if you are of a certain age, it was ju- it's just one of the coolest memories you will ever have watching professional football, assuming you're not a New York Giants fan. Loved watching him play. Best wishes in retirement. He will be a honorary captain for the Eagles against San Francisco on Sunday. I'm sure that'll be a really cool moment when he's announced. Best wishes to Deshaun. Awesome, awesome career. Elsewhere in the league, the Texans do announce that they will be without left guard Titus Howard for the rest of the year. Injured his knee in ja- against Jacksonville on Sunday. He's been dealing with knee issues for most of the season. And that's, I guess, if you're looking for a silver lining for losing a starter in December, they've been without him. He missed the first month of the season. Remember, the Texans' offensive line was a rotating door there for a little while. So... I guess I guess they they might they might be used to it, but I mean at that point you're just spinning it. Obviously, a big loss for the Texans to be without a starter for the home stretch. We'll see how they handle that. Best wishes to Titus Howard on the recovery from the knee injury. All right, let's talk Thursday night football, and we don't have to drum up any intrigue this week. It's a big one. It's Dallas. It's Seattle. Love the NFL loves putting the Cowboys on back to back Thursdays. Obviously. They're always going to play on Thanksgiving, so why not just keep them on that schedule for another week? I guess it's it's nice. It's, it gives you like a tentpole game to look forward to heading into the weekend. We don't have to pretend like some boring matchup between losing teams is entertaining. No, we got two playoff teams going at it on Thursday night, and, and this, the narrative is pretty obvious. This now begins the chance for the Cowboys to prove themselves as a member of the NFL's elite, you know the talking points. Dallas has won six of eight by an average of 25 points per game. They're absolutely murdering people. They've rolled over the vast majority of their schedule. The obvious problem with that is that those six wins have come against teams that are a combined 20 and 48. They are beating up on the dregs of the NFL. Their last three opponents are all currently top six in the draft order. The two losses in that stretch, you remember, 32-point blowout at the hands of San Francisco up in the Bay, and that heartbreaker in Philly, 23-28, maybe a, a three combined inches away from getting a win, but they don't quite get the job done. They got to do it against somebody with a pulse, and it starts tonight. And I, Cowboy fans, clip this out. I'm here to say, Don't let them move the goalposts on you, okay? The the Seahawks are a living, breathing NFL team. I'm not trying to convince anybody that they are the best in the league, but they are currently 
in the playoff field. They have beaten two teams that are above 500 right now, which is two more than Dallas has for the record. It was seen as a major statement across the league on Thursday night last week when San Francisco bludgeoned them. That was an impressive win for San Francisco. It's not going to be the biggest win that the Cowboys need this season, but this is not nothing. This is not a team that's going to pick at the top of the draft order. So yes, this might not be the end-all, be-all game for Dallas, but it is a significant step up in competition from what we've seen. Seahawks look about as healthy as what we've seen in the last couple weeks. Running back Kenneth Walker is doubtful to play, but it looks like Leonard Williams is going to play. Jamal Adams, maybe most importantly, Abe Lucas are all going to play. Lucas is their young, promising right tackle. Got hurt in week one. They haven't had him all season. One of their biggest issues has been their offensive line. They should have both of their starting tackles back for this game. We'll get to that in a minute. So no, this this doesn't validate the Cowboys as a Super Bowl participant. It doesn't validate Dak Prescott as an MVP candidate. But you have to take the first step before you can get to the destination, right? Like you're not you're not done with the road trip until you get in the car and start moving. So the the legacy games are waiting. It all it's all going to hinge on what Dallas does against Philadelphia a week after this. Buffalo and Miami are on the horizon. That's that is the meat of this thing. But they've won 13 straight at home. They've done it in dominant fashion. This is a chance to at least quiet the conversation about their legitimacy. This is a team that I'll I'll say it one more time. This is a team that would be in the playoffs if the season ended right now. It matters more than what we've seen the last three weeks. This is the first step in solidifying the Cowboys' resume. Plenty entertaining on its own right, but despite but despite what some of us talking heads would have you believe, it's not always all about the Cowboys. It's not. The Seahawks are a playoff team. Like this matters for them as well. You can feel their season slipping away if they're not careful. It's it's never going to be as loud as it is with a team like the Cowboys, but the Seahawks quietly, it hasn't been great against the top-tier composition, uh, top-tier opposition, excuse me. They escaped in overtime against Detroit way, way back, and they did beat the P.J. Walker Browns. That's their two wins against team above 500, but they got demolished by Baltimore just about a month ago, 37-3. And obviously, San Francisco just just wiped them off like, like dirt on their shoes last week on Thanksgiving. And the schedule doesn't get easier. When they're done at Dallas, they got the rematch against the 49ers. That's on the road. You got a home game against Philly after that. Closer to the end of the season, you've got the Steelers, who are a playoff team. Four of their last six opponents have a winning record, look likely to make the playoffs. They can't afford to wait for games against Tennessee and Arizona. If if the Seahawks want to make the playoffs, it's got to start. It's got to start right now. If we don't see a heightened level of play, it's going to feel like a fever dream that the Seahawks were even a playoff contender at all. So, sure, plenty of pressure on Dak Prescott and the Cowboys, but plenty of pressure on Geno Smith and the Seahawks as well. I mentioned Geno on purpose. You know, too much of the blame, too much of the credit. That's how it all. That's how we always say it. Gino was a Pro Bowler just a year ago. He's presently on pace for half as many touchdowns as he finished with last year, and and part of that has just been the shockingly inconsistent passing game over the last month. I know he had the elbow injury that affected last week, but over his last four games, three touchdown passes, two interceptions. DK Metcalf met with the Seattle media this week, and he did a wonderful job of pointing out Cowboys cornerback Deron Bland with his five pick sixes has more touchdowns than DK Metcalf this season. It's been frustrating to watch. What a big opportunity for them to to try to turn it around. And I mentioned it. That's why this is my matchup to watch. I'm just curious to see how Seattle's protection holds up against the Dallas pass rush because look, I I do think Dak Prescott belongs in the MVP conversation, but Dallas's wins at home have been fueled in large part by their dominant defensive performances, whether it's 
just getting after the quarterback, whether it's Deron Bland scoring touchdowns, it's all worked in in concert with each other to produce these 30 and 40 point wins. And it starts with their pass rush. You know the drill with Micah Parsons, Demarcus Lawrence, the rest of those guys, Dorrance Armstrong, Sam Williams, Oso Digizua, I could name them all. Parsons in particular, 71 total pressures, 11 and a half sacks on the year. Demarcus Lawrence far behind him with 33 and four, but this is one of the best duos in the league. They've led the charge all season long. And now Seattle looks like they're going to be at full strength at offensive tackle for the first time since week one. They drafted both of these guys, Charles Cross, Abraham Lucas, last year. Very promising seasons. Cross has been back for a, a few weeks and has looked promising. This is the first we'll see Abe Lucas since they lost to the Rams all the way back in September. I'm not saying that they're going to shut these guys out. Very few people have, but it starts with giving Geno Smith time. It starts with not letting any sacks become strip sacks or not letting any pressures become turnovers. Not Geno Smith having a guy in his face and throwing an ill-advised pass and all of a sudden Deron Bland is celebrating in your end zone again. That's what it comes down to for me. And in particular... The battle over on the left side, Charles Cross, he was the top 10 pick for the Seahawks a year ago, Micah Parsons. Micah moves all over the place, we know that, but in general, it seems like if if Micah Parsons is going to be on the edge, the Cowboys like for him to be on the right side, that's where Cross will be. Cross, eight games this year, 20 total pressures allowed, not not all pro type of stuff, but this is a guy who is developing into looking like he was worth that pick, in my opinion. How do you deal with Micah Parsons? Can you limit him? Like I said, can you keep him from turning things into explosive plays, into big moments for the Dallas defense? I'm curious to see it. A lot of components to it, but I really think if you're at the bare minimum, Seattle, if you're going to play this game close, and not let it turn into a beatdown, which is what we've seen most of the time. Cowboys, 13 straight wins at home. The vast majority of them coming by 20, 23, 30, 35 points. If you're going to keep it from being that type of game, it's Charles Cross and Abe Lucas dealing with this pass rush. And from there, maybe we'll actually see the Cowboys play a normal game script if the Seahawks protection can hold up. That is why I think this one is so important. I got to say, I lean toward Dallas in this game. I don't think that's super shocking. They're favored by nine points, which even, even knowing how well they've played and even knowing how rough it's looked for the Seahawks on offense, nine points between two playoff games says a lot about what Las Vegas thinks of the Cowboys when they're playing at AT&T Stadium. Not going to quiet all of the doubters. Like I think it was Dak Prescott said, we haven't done shit. Night, love it. First of all, love the quote, Dak. Let it fly. But yeah, not going to quiet all of the doubts as of yet, but this would be a nice first step. And I do think the Cowboys are up to that. All right, from the NFC, let's toss it over to the AFC, specifically the biggest, baddest division in football right now. Three teams above 500. That is the AFC North. Had a chance to sit down with a guy who might know a thing or two about it. That is former Steelers Pro Bowl linebacker Ryan Shazier. Talked all things AFC North from the Steelers' resurgent offense to the Baltimore Ravens. Touched on the Browns' defense and how they might get through this rough stretch without much in the way of quarterback play. Covered basically the whole thing. Check it out. All right, Ryan, I'm I'm really excited to bring you in, man. Who better to to talk to for some perspective uh, on this on this Pittsburgh Steelers season? We'll talk some AFC North, but. We got a chat with your guys up in Pittsburgh. And look, I know it wasn't like the the craziest day offensively. They only scored 16 points. But when you crack 400 yards of offense for the first time in three years, I mean, I feel like the vibes around the Steelers have to be pretty damn good uh, after what they've been through offensively this season to, to finally break through a little bit. Yeah, the vibes you can definitely tell just from watching them and then just being around guys. Uh, I don't like, we, I didn't ask them too much information because you know, guys don't want to go too in depth, especially with me being in media now. But uh, is you can just tell like everybody seems just more a beat, they seem more 
uh, like they believe in the process of what's going to happen with it throughout the game. And you just seen that even throughout the game on the defensive side of the ball, when you have a team that can put up 400 yards of offense, you know that there's an opportunity that you can put up a lot of points. The Steelers only went one for four in the red zone, and that's why they only had 16 points. But you have to think about it. They haven't been in the red zone that lot a lot this year, so they had to get they have to start getting more practice being down there in that type of situation. But when you get four hundred yards of offense, that means everybody's touching the ball, everybody's getting a piece of it, and when everybody's getting a piece of the ball, normally guys are really happy, really excited, and you normally see relationships seeming like they're best friends. When uh, when you have a hundred yards or two hundred yards of offense, that means one or two guys getting the ball. And everybody's like, yo, we need, I need more touches. I need more opportunities. I love the idea. Yeah. Like we're heading into week 13 and the Steelers are like, all right, now we can get to the red zone. Now we can work on getting better when we get down (laughs) there, you know, baby steps. Okay. I'm fascinated by what you just said though. And I definitely, I don't want you to put any current Steelers on blast. I get that. But from your perspective as a player, whether college pro, whatever, like when you, what, when you experience a breakthrough like that, whether it's finally generating some offense, finally having a big day on defense, finally winning a game, whatever it is. I mean, just what's, what's that like in the locker room? You mentioned kind of like a sense of relief. Like what's that like among you and your teammates when y'all finally get that result that you've been looking for? So I, I had my own personal experience with this. So I remember when I played, and it was the year I got hurt, but that year we had the killer bees, you know, and everybody's like, yeah, that offense is not kind of how this offense is. But at the beginning of the season, they, you know, in training camp and everything, they were like, hey, we're going to be averaging 30 points a game. 30 points a game is a lot of points. You know what I'm saying? Like 30 points a yep. game, we're going to be, you know, we're going to be killing people on the on, on offense. That's what the offense said out there in, like, the media in the, in the in camp. So to start the season off, they started off slow. They started off real slow. We lost the game to the Bears. And we had a team meeting on the defense side of the ball. It was like, hey, we can't trust these guys. And we need to – like, obviously, we we know that they're going to eventually figure things out. But we went in there and was like, hey, we, we can't trust these guys until they figure things out. So we're going to have to win games ourselves. And when you're a defense and you feel like you have to win games yourself, it's not a very comfortable position, but it also understand you also understand, hey, I gotta lock up. I have to make sure that I hold everybody to 14 points, hold everybody to 17 points. Cause if they're not getting those 30, at least they're gonna get 20, you know? So and then once they once we lost to the Bears and started figuring things out, they started just bombarding 30 point games on people. And it was like, oh man, here we go. As a defense, we can relax a little bit more. And as a team, it makes it a lot better because you want to have that hard-nosed defense. You want to have a defense that creates turnovers that can win a game for you. But you also want to have a game where you're like, man, we're not having our best game. We need the offense to step up as well. And that's the struggles that the Steelers have had this season. There's every game besides this last one. And even if you can count this last one, the defense had to win the game. And, you know, that's a – and they end up seven and four, but that's a very slippery slope that you can end up on. Cause look at the Browns. The Browns have the number one defense in the league, but you know, they don't have a quarterback and they can't really score any offense. And man, it's gonna be really tough for them the rest of the season. I definitely want to get to the Browns in a minute. But so we talking about the Steelers. I mean, I, I'm sure we all agree we'd like to see them do a little bit more, but you just mentioned it. They got to six and four. And got outgained in every game before they really, you know, before the offense showed much of a sign of life. So if that's the floor for the, I mean, if the offense can do that, where, I mean, where do you, where do you see this season going the rest of the year? I mean, they're already a playoff team without an offense and now it looks like they might have one. So the thing that was so crazy, I thought obviously the offense was going to play a lot better throughout this whole season. And I, I said that this is a 12 win team. The way that is looking right now, I, I can see this team pulling out 11 wins easily because you think about the next two wins, the next two, I mean, the next two games, we have the, uh, we are, the Steelers have the, the Cardinals and then they have the Patriots. Those are very winnable games. And then they play, they play Cincinnati again. That's a, they just beat Cincinnati because Cincinnati can't create offense because they they don't have the quarterback. And, and so the back half of their schedule is very favorable. And that's why I think this team can, can pull out 11 wins or 12 wins because the one thing that most people in the NFL are scared of 
is Lamar Jackson and the Baltimore Ravens. But when you see the Steelers when they play them, they understand how to play each other. That's you know they're 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 rivals. They understand what they can and can't do versus Lamar and how they like to play defense. And Coach Tomlin has their number the last few years. So I don't think that's a team that they're really scared of, but a team that they respect. So I, I think they can pull out at least eleven or twelve wins. Coach Tomlin is the last thing I wanted to talk about for Pittsburgh. I mean, okay, I I I think you're right. I mean, 10 11 10 wins seems like the floor and 11 certainly feels possible. It would be another year without a losing record and you get to, you know, 11 wins potentially without having much of an offense for half of that season. I mean, would this be the year that finally gets Mike Tomlin a coach of the year award. I, we looked it up. I can't believe he hasn't had one over all these years. So to me, it just, I don't understand how they judge the coach of the year award because it's been years where coach Tomlin had a winning record with Doug Hodges and they went to the playoffs. And it's like, how did he even figure that out? Wow, and I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus, but if you look at a team like Brandon Staley's where they have all the talent in the world, when you look at a team like the Bills, they have all the talent in the world, and they they might not even finish with a winning record. When you look at Coach Tomlin's teams, obviously he had Ben Roethlisberger, but this year he doesn't have Ben, and he had to really lean on the defense on this side of the ball. So I think that he's doing a great coaching job when it comes to the Coach of the Year award, but you know they love to give those awards to old teams that win uh, lose one or two games. So. Which is funny because to you, I mean, I agree. Like the the award so often goes to the team that wins like thirteen or fourteen games. But Mike T's had those seasons too, and somehow didn't get that award during any of those years. So we'll see how it goes. I want to kick it around to the rest of the division real quick. We mentioned Baltimore potentially being the one team that the Steelers, you know, might might be a little afraid of. They meet at the end of the season. Nine and three, they're on their bye week. What what do you what do you make of the Ravens? Like, I feel weird for asking that question because they obviously have the best record in the AFC right now. But at the same time, we've we've seen them struggle through some games. Whether it was last week against the Chargers, whether it was, I keep going back to that weird weird loss against Pittsburgh because it was one of the weirder ones that I've ever seen. Just clearly, this is a good team, but but what do they need to do down the home stretch? So this one is going to hurt me to say this, but I think that Baltimore is probably going to win the AFC North. Um, I think the Steelers aren't, they're literally only a game behind them when you really think about it, if the Steelers win this next game. But I still think that the way they're playing ball, when I watch them play football, I think they're the, when you watch them play football, I think they're the best team in the AFC because how they pit offense and defense together. So when it, when it comes to, I don't know if they're going to win the Super Bowl, but when it comes to winning the AFC, but when it, but what I think this team does a really good job of is they understand how to run the ball. They're doing a really good job of adding in Zay Flowers and Odell Beckham into the passing game. And it, to me, it's kind of crazy how they use Isaiah Likely, but they still saying, hey, I know Mark Andrews is not in the game, but we're going to still effectively use our tight end. And I actually like that a lot. And it's not all about Lamar trying to win Lamar's way. He's winning, you know, the best way possible. I'm going to throw the ball down the field. If you give me the running lane, I'm going to run. And then we're going to hand it off to Gus Edwards for the touchdown. So I think that the, the way they're playing is great. They, their defense, you don't even have to talk about it because it's their defense literally killed my whole fantasy team this week. It, I, I, was winning, <laughs> I was winning the game and their defense just killed my whole fantasy team. But the biggest problem that I think that the Ravens have, if the Ravens make it to the Super Bowl, they're going to win the Super Bowl. Like no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And the reason I say that is because teams that don't play Lamar in the Ravens on a regular basis, they don't know how to handle them. They don't know how to play against them. But teams that play him on a regular basis, that's the ones when they come into uh, situations where they get, you know, they stump their toe or they start making mistakes or Lamar doesn't play as well. That's why the Steelers do well versus them. That's why the Ravens do well. And that's why the, the Browns do well. That's why our division does really well versus them. But also the Chiefs, you know, because they play them a decent amount. And, you know, in, in the Chargers, they play them a decent amount. So those teams that play them on a regular basis, that's when the games are a lot closer and things look a little bit funky. But when they play teams like the Lions and teams that don't play them on a regular basis, that's when it, it can get scary. So if they can navigate a couple of games against teams that they've played four or five times in the last few years, they might be all right. Yeah, I think they'll be all right because I think obviously the Eagles are the 49ers. I know everybody's talking about the Lions and the Cowboys, but I think the Eagles and the 49ers are probably going to be the two teams that make it. And the Eagles are good enough, but since 
they they have they have Jalen Hurts, but Jalen Hurts is not Lamar Jackson. They are like polar opposites of how they play football. You know, and so just to, like containing Jalen Hurts is a completely different story than containing Lamar Jackson. And I feel like they're not going to really be used to it. Obviously, you get the, the film, but they wouldn't really be used to it. You've seen what happened with the Lions. It's like boom, 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 boom. But then it's like, whoa, you know, it's like what happened? And I think when they, when they play against those NFC teams, that's when the Ravens normally step up to the plate. You, you just mentioned it, and I agree. I mean, it seems like the Ravens are doing – a better job of like complimenting Lamar than they ever have. Like whether it's the running game, whether it's having passing options, like it's not just asking Lamar to go out and do everything, which we've seen him do so many times, but am I right in thinking that like, I mean, stopping the Ravens still centers around stopping that, right? Yeah. It it centers around stopping that because you, the Lamar Jackson is a good thrower. Obviously he's won an MVP, but he's not, He's not Joe Burrow. He's not Josh Allen. He's not Lamar. I mean, he's not uh, Patrick Mahomes. But when, but when, but he uses his legs. And if you just force him to sit in there, and you can stop their run, now you have to lean on Lamar's shoulders when it comes to strictly throwing the ball. That's when it's a whole different story. You, he might get yards on you. And the still has shown that it's like, hey, we might give up yards, but in the red zone in those tight areas, if you don't let Lamar make those extra, you know, improvised type plays that Patrick Mahomes makes, that's when it's a lot tougher for them. And you got now their defense has to make plays, or you know, somebody else has to make a play besides Lamar. And that's why the uh, the the AFC North does a really good job planning against them. You touched on this a little while back talking about the Steelers, but the Browns are in a similar situation where, look, I mean, 7-4, they're clearly a good football team, one of the best defenses in the league. But where do you think, and and so many badasses on that defense, but where do you think that defense is mentally right now knowing, hey, we might be about to start our fourth quarterback. Like, we – can't necessarily count on the offense to save the day for us. I mean, where do you where do you think they are from a mindset standpoint? So as a defense, your mindset is basically, hey, we can't trust those guys. We have to create turnovers and give them the ball in in in, in great field position. It's not that we can we can't trust those guys as in like we don't know what they're going to do, which they don't, but it's more of, hey, I trust us more than I trust them in this situation when it means like, hey, we have to be tight. We can't give up yards. We can't. We have to create turnovers and we have to make it extremely hard on the offense. It's not that, man, you know, those guys, they're not living up to their word is no, they they just can't. They can't. They just can't sustain it. They we we're playing our fourth stream quarterback and we're still 74. So as a defense, if we stop everybody under 17 points, we stop everybody under 13 points. Man, we have a solid chance of winning this game, and that's kind of the mindset you have to go on on defense. The the year that the the Broncos won with uh, mm. Von Miller, yeah, every, everybody knew that they had the weapons, they had Peyton Manning, but it was like in their mindset, it was like, hey, we got to go take wins. We're not, we we can't, we 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 love you, Peyton. We want to win this for you, Peyton, but you're not going to be the person that's winning us the Super Bowl. You know what I'm saying? Like, and that's the kind of mindset that the Ravens, I mean, the Browns have right now when it comes to playing with quarterbacks that one game they might be, you know, Mike White. Then the next game they might be Mike White. You know what I'm saying? So it's just like you don't know what you're going to get. So you have to really focus on creating turnovers, giving your younger four-string quarterback the ball with very favorable field position. Not they don't have to go 80 yards. They have to go 50. They have to go 40, you know, and allow them more opportunities to win like that or create, you know, pick sixes, fumble, scooping scores, and punt blocks. They're they're gonna have to add every aspect to the game for them to, to win more. One last one for you, just about the division in general. Three teams above 500, strongest division in football. All due respect to the Bengals, but until I see something more from Jake Browning, I'm going to assume that this is a three-team race. But what is it like as a competitor, as a football player, does it change anything about your approach or the or the mentality that you have to have? Like when you look around the division and everybody keeps winning, like every week, you're like, we can't afford a slip because nobody else is slipping either. I mean, is is that element real? Like when you're in the locker room preparing for, for the home stretch of the season? So honestly, 
people people always say i don't look at the media i don't pay attention to that stuff but you try your best not to but every every coach majority of coaches i know coach tomlin he always broke it down in four quarters this season every season is four quarters you know and we had to at least try to go three and one in each quarter so right now you know the browns that's the probably the same mindset Hey, the ball is on because if you really think about it, the ball is in all their courts. If if all of them just continue to win their games that they're supposed to win, all of them are going to go into the playoffs. They might bump it. You know, the Browns have to play each other. No, the Browns and the Steelers already even out. And then the Ravens have to play each other again. So it's just and, and the Ravens and the Steelers have to play each other again. It's more about yep. just handling your business. That's what Coach Tom is definitely telling the guys. We handle our business, win the games we're supposed to win. Hey, we might end up winning the AFC. Or I mean the AFC North, but if we don't win the AFC North, all still all the Steelers care about is getting into the playoffs. Because once you get into the playoffs, hey, it's everybody's game from there. And the, and the Raven the, and the Browns are probably saying the same thing. They don't. The Browns probably right now they don't probably think they're going to win in the division. But as long as they get in the playoffs, your defense has to get get hot. And once your defense get hot, you know create turnovers. Do you win football games? I cannot wait to see how it plays out. I, I hope I talk to you before then, but at the very least, we got to get you back. I Steelers and Ravens play the return game. I think it's week 18. I think it's the last game of the season. Something fun is going to be on the line. I can't wait to see what. Ryan, it was a ton of fun chopping it up with you, man. I appreciate it. I hope to talk to you soon. Yeah, I hope to talk to you soon too, David. And man, thank you guys for having me on here. And it's always a, a pleasure to, to be uh, able to talk about football. All right, that does it for the show. Thanks again to Peter and Ryan. We will be back on Friday. Obviously, we're going to recap everything that happens in this Cowboys-Seahawks game, but we will have our entire Week 13 preview. Obviously, that means plenty of Niners-Eagles talk. We're also going to get into Lions-Saints. We're going to talk to our good friend Carmen Vitale about Chiefs-Packers. Jam-packed show for Friday. We will be here to take you through the whole thing. Until then. Please go find us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. We have a YouTube channel you should subscribe to. The whole deal, you know where to find us. We appreciate it so much. I will catch you all next time.